When I think of Brunswick, I think of Melbourne's trams along Sydney Road. I think of the working class heritage, and despite there being a handful of Vaffasides all in close proximity to one another, I think of Brunswick North Old Boys. A club formed in 1932 as North Melbourne CBC, they were expelled from the Vaffa in 1939 and reinstated into the competition some 24 years later by past students of St Joseph CBC North Melbourne. They were known from the late 60s onwards as the North Old Boys, joining forces with St Patrick's College Ballarat in 2005. Upon return, they experienced a meteoric rise up the grades, reaching A section in 1968, where they stayed for a then record 23 years, helping themselves to two premierships along the way. The boys of Brunswick have tasted regular success across all sections and all grades dominating seniors, reserves and under-19s. There's much to love about the side from Gill and Oval. They're a much respected club in the Vaffa and after several seasons in B grade and in lower divisions, the Brunswick Knobs remain committed to returning to its rightful position among the top rung of the Amos. This is the Club in Focus podcast. My name is Joe Pignataro. It's a pleasure to be with you and a pleasure to take you through the history of the Brunswick Football Club. And to help me do it all is the voice, the face and the best looking man in the Amos. It's Mr. Nick Armistead. Hello, Nico. You're far too kind, Joseph. There's not a person in the Amos who'd agree with you, but I am very, very excited to be here, particularly once again after your world famous introduction on the Brunswick Footy Club and how have they just gone from strength to strength, particularly recently. I mean, teaming up with the Renegades as well, their women's team. So they're just absolutely, and they're juniors, they're absolutely dominating all facets. I look forward to entering into those discussions with our guests today. I cannot wait for that. We are going to chat to a host of stars of the Brunswick Footy Club, starting with Bruno Conti, Nico, who you're going to tell me a bit about very shortly. And of course, people in ammo circles will know Bruno very, very well. The current club president, Jared Brown, is going to join us. Uh, 300 games superstar, Scotty Sleep. And we're also going to chat to the former co-president, Kim Hennessy, who these days is instrumental in the women's side of things, the Brunswick Renegades. But Nico, we've got to go back to the very start. And uh, I mentioned in the intro... The Brunswick Footy Club came into the competition back in 1939 and seven years later, they were expelled from the competition. They pushed the lines. Do you know any more reasons as to why they were expelled in 1939? Well, we have done our research and we've looked back at it and uh, they had some pretty well-known identities at the club at that time, particularly on an admin side. They had Jim Whelan, the son of JP Whelan, who was the founder of Whelan the Wrecker. On the playing side, the youthful Jock McCorkle, a post-war champion fullback for North Melbourne League side, and as coach, Jack McHale, the son of Jock. Now, Jack McHale, son the, of Jock. Son of the great Jock McHale, who you would know very well as a Collingwood supporter. I, I do, thought. yes. know Jock very well. Most people will. <laughs> so in 1939, officials rang in a player called Jennings, there is report says, under the name of Keeney. Now, as you can understand, Whoa. naming a player under someone else's name is probably not the best way to go about things. And unfortunately for them, 
old Jennings was a hothead. He abused the umpire. He was hauled before the tribunal and his identity was uncovered. Then transpired that, as with the National Bank a few years earlier, only one or two officials were involved, but that didn't matter. The club was still expelled. There were dark mutterings around Errol Street that sectarian prejudice was the real reason for the Vapor's action. So maybe if they they were this side of the highway, they thought it might not have happened. But I was looking back to see who was the president at that time who enforced, I suppose, this expulsion. And that was Harold Stewart, was the right-hand man of the one and only L.A. Adamson, who we know is a Wesley Stewart, as is um, Harold Stewart. He's, he was his right-hand man for years. So it was well known that they were pretty strict at that time in, in the past and clearly they've come down on them like a ton of bricks here and it took them, what, 24 years before they re-entered. 24 years, Nico, they had to re- apologise for before they got the chance to come back into the competition. There's a f- fantastic photo that we've uncovered on the Brunswick website, which we'll put out on social media. Follow the Vaffer at Vaffer underscore HQ uh, on Twitter and Instagram. It's of their 1963 side. When they were welcomed back into the competition, their magnificent purple jumper with the white collar, Nico. We've already done a purple army side this uh Club in Focus podcast in Collegians. They've got the gold. And, of course, we talked about their inaugural colours being the light blue and white. Well, the Brunswick Footy Club, purple with a couple of horizontal thin white strips. They still wear their jumper today, which is absolutely magnificent that they've kept that heritage going. But we just talked about how they tested the rules in 1939. Well, I'm told through the research that I've done that in the early 70s or mid-70s, they tested the rules again with their club shorts. Do you know anything about that, Nico? Yes, well, you've, as you pointed out, they did test <laughs> the rules yet again. Clearly, there's a little bit about them. They don't mind bending the rules, um, if not breaking them at times. I mean, it's all fun and games because at this point, and we love an attire-based sort of dangerous move, as you know, where you go on all the time about some Bernard's old jumper. Yes. This time, they became the first ever team to wear coloured shorts, which is outstanding. Unfortunately, though, at the time, they had they did not have permission from the VAFA. So I think they might have got a little bit of a slap for that. But then you'll see that the VAFA allowed all clubs to do it the year after. And so a few of the clubs did adopt that. So they were real trendsetters, the old Brunswick knobs. So, Nico, I'm not sure if there's any pictures in any of the VAFA archives or in that centenary history book that you've got. But when we're talking about coloured shorts in that era, I'm assuming we had black shorts for home games and white shorts for away games. But when we're talking about them wearing coloured shorts and them being purple, are we assuming that purple is the colour that was not allowed and then a year later was allowed? Well, I'm assuming so. Unfortunately, it doesn't go into much detail about what colour the actual shorts were. I mean, it's pretty dangerous wearing some purple shorts, not just for the fact that they didn't have permission, but for the opposition to come at them, which I'm assuming they probably did. They would have looked like lollipops out there in that day and age. But, you know, it's a bold decision. And clearly, as I said, they were trendsetters. I mean, the Vaffery permitted it, I suppose, a year later with a lot of the clubs taking it up. This side was a dominant side when they came back, Nico, in the 60s. So they entered the competition in 1963 and it took them to 1968 to get to A section. That means they've played in grand finals in 1964 in the seniors in E section. 1965 in the seniors in D section. They lost, unfortunately, 1966 in C, 1967 in B, and then they've played A section football in 1968. 
That is an incredible rise for a team that's had 24 years hiatus come back and dominated the competition. That is absolutely amazing. Now, granted, they only won a couple of them, but for the fact that they've gone up every single year, for what is that, five straight years from E to A is absolutely amazing. And as we know, as already been spoken about, they had sustained success at the top level once they did get there, which was fantastic. But the fact that they, you know, they got in trouble, they got a slap, they, um, they did their time, they came back and just went absolutely bang. I do look forward to getting, getting to that with Bruno um, to see if he can shed any light on some of the stars that they had going through the club at that point. Well, we're also going to tell you about some of these stars that are in their 300 club, their 250 club, but they've also released a team of the century, which is quite extraordinary considering they haven't been around for 100 years, but it's a magnificent team. <laughs> their first A-section senior flag came in 1976. They played off in the 1975 a-section grand final, which they lost to St Bernard's, and 12 months later, they turned the tables, so they got themselves an A-section flag. Both of those sides came in to the competition together in 1963. So to see them rise almost at the same time in the same fashion, and then almost fittingly, really, that they've started together, They're both their first A-section flags were against each other. They won theirs by 49 points in 1976. Nico, they created a record for themselves. It was the then record of staying up in a section for 23 straight years. Where do you consider where they are now to where they once were? I mean, this is a real dominant side of our competition. Yeah, absolutely it is. To be up there for that length of time and to be that strong of a club is absolutely fantastic. They played in six grand finals between 75 and 82, obviously the two flags which you mentioned, but to play in six grand finals in, what, seven years? Absolutely amazing. They've got West Brunswick, they've got North Brunswick, Fitzroy play at Brunswick Street Oval, UHS are at Brens Oval. There's a couple of other clubs around the area, not just in the Amos, but in other divisions that play for money, sorry, other competitions. That's what I can't wait to find out is what's the drawing card? What's the pull to get their players to come and play for them over all these other clubs in that area? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's an interesting part. I know Jared Brown's worked really hard in the whole club, but he's worked really hard with his co-president the past few years, particularly with that junior affiliation and re-strengthening that. Because back in the olden days, reading reading through the full love of the game book, they had a strong affiliation with, it was Carlton and North Melbourne at the time, obviously North Melbourne CBC, they were clearly going to have an affiliation with them. But they clearly don't have that sort of strength um, that sort of strong affiliation with any VFL club now, obviously. And in fact, as you said, they're competing against a lot more clubs in the area, particularly when you think about it, um, Fitzroy, which obviously have just as much, if not even a longer sort of history um, to draw players into. So it'd be interesting to find out what their strengths are, what their one-woods are, and how they do recruit these players. What about yourself, Nico? Is there one thing that sticks out for you in, in what we're going to talk about across the next 45 minutes to an hour that, that you can't wait to find out the answer to? Yeah, there's a couple There's a couple of things. They had a kit controversy, which is obviously, we've touched on, I reckon, that's one of the coolest things there is. But I want to know about this brandy at halftime. Brens Oval, they used to play at Brens Oval. Um, we know what a fortress it is these days. Um, and maybe their coach of the in a team of the century dished out a little alcoholic uh, beverage at halftime. Well, Bruno Conti was part of that team in the 80s. Let's uh, find out from the man who not only has done it all and is a celebrated player of the Brunswick Footy Club, he's a celebrated player of the Amos overall, and he's about to join us, the former president of the VAFA, Bruno Conti. He was uh, fiercely competitive, uh, extremely skillful, and... Uh, 
yeah, just a, a wonderful leader on the field. Great company on and off the field. But as a player, he was uh, he excelled at state level. He was fantastic. Uh, Bruno, very good player, very solid halfback flanking type of player who would always be very conscious of beating his man and creating opportunities for his teammates up the field. Bruno was the, the real consummate professional. Good, strong halfback flanker. Um, Bruno, I played with his uh, older brother Robert and um, I saw Bruno come through as a very young player through our uh, juniors and uh, he developed into a terrifically well-balanced footballer, a leader amongst men and, uh, and subsequently a wonderful state player. One of the hardest to play against, played in a lot of positions, could play tall, could play small in today's uh, vernacular. Very passionate about the way he went about it and played in a really good era. The, the North Old Bulls Football Club had a lot of really good quality players uh, around Bruno, and, uh, but he, and he fitted in really well with that environment, good hard, strong football with Brent. Just the opportunity to meet new people, make new friends and play in a quality side and, and, have, a success, and have success on, on a game day, uh, which I don't think North Old Bulls at that time, I don't think had a terribly successful run. But he was a very fair player and um, I, always, I often like uh, having a bit of a crack at Bruno about the way he went about his football. He was, he was kind of a gentleman in a lot of ways. He just was great company on and off the field. Um, he was a great player. He played it hard. Him and uh, Rob Fuller, Wayne Carey, Russell Barnes were great mates. And uh, obviously Fuller and Conti brought uh, a bit of John Fisher type uh, activities across to our era. Just loved playing for the Big V. He just, and uh, he very rarely would even dispute umpiring decisions. He just, he just got on with the game. He's uh, one of our great outstanding footballers at North Old Boys because it's my club, but uh, also at state football, he was a consistently good player. Not so much on the field. The first time, first time I met Bruno was uh, at state training in 1986. And as you do, you go up and you shake hands. And it was, hey, Bruno, how you going? Russell Barnes. He said, yeah, Bruno Conti, but you can call me Cake. So obviously it was cake from there, and uh, I said to him, why, why cake? He said, Brutus Beefcake, the wrestler. <laughs> Probably more after the game than on the field with Bruno, because he liked to have a beer with you and talk about it, and that's when he would complain. Oh, Benny, what about this, or what about that, you know, and all that stuff. This is an amateur football, he was just an outstanding state player who represented his state with great honour all the time. Competitive, fiercely competitive, extremely loyal, and just a, a wonderful ambassador and statesman, and a, truly uh, worthy recipient of um, Big V Mate, you're a terrific player, you're a ter terrific person, your input into amateur football has been nothing short of outstanding and just hope you have a fantastic day and uh, look forward to being a friend of yours for many, many years to come. Nico, that was a moving piece from 2013, the Big V Club induction of that year and Bruno Conti, the man we're about to speak to, inducted into the Big V Club, I'm going to get you in just a moment to run through his CV and his resume, but those voices you just heard are Brett Connell, who's the current CEO of the VAFA, Russell Barnes, who of course is aligned with St. Beads, Benny Goodman, who runs, uh, I think he runs the umpiring, Nico, correct me if I'm wrong there, and Shane Maguire, who was a former Big V selector the time Bruno was running around for the Big V. So, magnificent piece. Uh, check it out on vaffa.com.au. It's still there. It's still available for people who do want to see it and watch it. There's a couple of highlights of Bruno playing for the Big V, Nico. But you've had a bit of time spent with Bruno over your years in the VAFA. Tell us a little bit about, first, your relationship with Bruno and then what he's achieved over his magnificent career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you ask anyone, and Bruno's a pretty measured 
unit, and I think that came across in the way he played his footy. He's calm, he's collected, and obviously when he became VAPA president in 2010 after being vice president for a few years, we saw that as well. So, no, he's a, he's a ripping bloke. I've interviewed him a couple of times for other Big B champion inductions, um, always willing to give up his time. I'm looking forward to speaking to him here. Just before we do, he played 230 games for Nobs Joey between 83 and 97. You know, he's captain for three of those years, vice captain for another four. Um, unfortunately for him, despite how good he was and despite how good his teammates were and um, Nobs were at the time, they lost the three grand finals that he played in. Um, but he was best and fairest twice and runner-up four times. Now, he was obviously excellent from a club point of view, but he was just as good, if not even better, when he represented the Big B. He played 16 games, and obviously that's why he was inducted. Um, he played in four AFC carnivals, which, by the way, later on he chaired from 2012, that committee. He was All-Australian twice, vice-captain six times, and if one of his best mates, uh, Rob, Fuller, probably if he wasn't there, the old Scotch, the old Cardinal wasn't there, he probably would have captained a few of the games. But he was VC six times, selected for 13 games over nine years, which means that in total he was involved in 36 games of Big V footy over nine years. As we know, he was champion 2013. He was made a life member of the VAPA in 2018 and his resume stacks up with the best of them i would have thought joey it certainly does i had the great privilege of being at the season launch in 2018 at the mcg where he was the way it panned out he became the guest speaker because our great friend daniel harford uh, fell ill that week so bruno was uh, as our headline guest you know what else he's done nico not that i mean that resume is absolutely outstanding, but 24 reserves games with uh, two arch rivals in the VFL in Essendon and Collingwood in the late 80s, if you don't mind. I mean, that's uh, right when Essendon just coming off that four consecutive grand finals against Hawthorne and Collingwood are just building towards that 1990 premiership. So he was around some pretty good people at the time. Uh, you mentioned he's 230 games, his captaincy with the North Old Boys. I'm fascinated to ask him about those six years where he was either club best and fairest or club runner-up. A little bit stiff to miss out four times. But he's also the halfback <laughs> flanker in their team of the century, Nico, and he's the vice-captain there. Got beaten by fullback Shane Maguire for the uh, official title as captain in their team of the century. Now, look, we don't, don't want to harp on the negatives here, but what he seems a bit stiff at times, doesn't he? He's vice-captain, the big V vice-captain <laughs> in the team of the century, but... I just look at it, as you said, he, he was captain for Nobs and he's obviously had an illustrious career, um, but he's played with some very, very good players. And that's probably one of the things I'm looking forward to, to talking the most, talking about some of the teammates he's played at both North Old Boys and at Big B level. Well, Nico, he's hanging on the line. He's having a listen to all of this. Uh, let's have a chat to him now and bring him in. Bruno Conti. Hello, Bruno. How are you, Nick? You're well? We're going very well. Thank you, Bruno. Uh, mate, we just uh, had a bit of a chat before you came on about your time with the Big V and, and your time at Nobs. Can we start with the yes. Big V stuff? Because it is an illustrious career that you've got and you're representing the state and it's sort of the highest accolade you get playing in the VAFA these days. Uh, take us through your memories of when you first got introduced to it all and then I think it spans 36 games of your involvement across a number of years. So I started in the amateurs in 83. I was under 19, but I played a bit of senior football. And my first um, state game was in 86. So I would have been 20, 21 years of age. I, I recall 
was a thrill when I was um, uh, called to say that I'd been invited to be a part of the squad. My really good mate, who ended up being my best man, Anthony Carr, was also uh, part of the squad. So it was 1986. I was selected on an extended interchange bench on the Thursday and found out just before the game, half-time of the curtain raiser, that I'd, I'd missed out. Um, so I was technically first emergency, um, which was disappointing. But um, about three weeks later, we had a carnival in Adelaide. We won that carnival and I, it was the start of um, many long-standing relationships and friendships that I still have today. I want to ask you about some of those long-standing relationships that you mentioned. Obviously, um, yep. we've got a tight-knit group of friends, which I am aware of, because obviously one of them is our CEO, Brett Connell, but also Rob Fuller, Russell Barnes, who's been a big V coach and obviously player as well, and Wayne Carey from St. Bernard's. Can you tell us about how those friendships came to be and how you still continue to um, be best mates with these guys? As recently as last year, you all went on a trip together. Yeah, so uh, Rob Fuller still uh, maintains the record for the most number of games played. He was he was unique um, in terms of his leadership and his ability to galvanise a, a group of uh, boys from all walks of life was, was quite special. So in 86, I met him and Russell Barnes. Uh, I actually knew Wayne Carey. Wayne Carey didn't come onto the scene, the VAFA state scene, for a couple of years. Later, I think it was 89, 90 perhaps. But I actually knew Wayne because he played at St Bernard's and I was at um, North, sorry, when I say St Bernard's, school football St Bernard's and I was CBC North Melbourne. So we played a lot of um, double AC football, associated, sorry, ACC football for, you know, four years. So I knew him. And then, of course, Brett came along a little bit later and, and Brett, and we really kind of, you know, at that stage, Russell and Frosty and myself had played three or four years and became, you know, a bit of a core group, I guess you could say, within that uh, state sort of fraternity. And we always, I remember, you know, feeling really passionate about the younger kids that sort of came under the scene and showed as much passion and excitement for playing for the big V as we did. And Brett was one of those. And we took him under our wing, I guess, um, and then he went on to uh, carve out a fabulous state and, and also club career. And of course, today he's our CEO. So Rob's been in the Bahamas. He was in the Bahamas for ten years, and he's been in Barbados for the last three years. So when the tragic circumstances of um, Russell Barnes's daughter sort of passing away a couple of years ago, we determined that now was the time for all of us to go and visit Rob in uh, Barbados, and we did that. In October, November last year, we had a fabulous, fabulous trip to Cuba, Barbados, St. Lucia and Miami. And it's a really special and unique relationship that um, will um, stand the test of time. Bruno, going back to 1986 and right through to uh, the current day, is there one big V game that you either played in or you were a chairman of selectors of uh, that stands out more than any other? Yeah, there is. And it was against the country in 19, uh, I think it was 1993, and and they had a um, a formidable lineup. We we were coached by Barry Richardson, and this particular game was at Alstonwick Park, and I remember it really clearly. It was it was one of those against the odds 
wins. We were the underdogs. And I, I recall Barry, I mean, he was brilliant with how he coached us on that day. And I remember an incident just before quarter time. I'll never forget it. There was a really strong-looking kid sort of running one way from the VCFL and, and one of our boys, uh, Peter Tyson from Old Halebury, running in the opposite direction. And they sort of hit each other at really intense kind of speed and both went to ground and Peter Tyson, the VAFA player, got up first. And it was just before quarter time and I remember going into quarter time and Barry uh, instilling us this belief that, you know, we we were just as tough as them, just as good as them. And, and that particular incident, I'll, I'll never forget, it just gave us so much confidence. And we went on to win a nail-biter. You know, we went down to the wire. We There were some really desperate acts of play towards the end of the game that stick out in my memory. I think that's my favourite one. And let's go over to Nobs now in your career with, with Brunswick. Uh, just, just because you went to school where you said you were and it just followed on from there or was there an influence from either a parent or a friend that was playing there that said, come on down and try your hand at uh, Nobs? Yeah, so it was pretty natural because my, my older brother, uh, Robert, played and I used to fanatically support them as a young kid from you know the age of 12, 13. So I'd, most Saturdays after playing football in the morning, I'd go and watch North Old Boys in the afternoon and there was a group of probably six or seven other kids who were all around my age whose older brothers were playing. So we had... Six years of an apprenticeship, I guess, where we just got indoctrinated into North Old Boys. And um, when I left school in 82, it was just very natural for me to go and play with them. I just want to ask you about one particular incident that happened during your time with North Old Boys, Bruno. And um, (laughs) one of your greatest foes, like you had quite a few at North Old Boys, but clearly one of them was Ormond due to their success during the late 80s and things like that. I think it was one year where I'm told that you probably weren't going to play finals and Ormond were, and yourself, you were clipped by Grant Petering, father of Matt, maybe off the bowl. Um, and he, got you pretty, he, he got you pretty good, but you went to the tribunal and you upheld the player's code of silence and you got yes. him off and, and allowed him to play in finals. Yes. Well done. Jesus Christ, that's good research. I'm not sure how you got that. But, yeah, I mean, it was. I met Russell Barnes, and and at that point, um, Ormond were a a powerhouse. So, by extension, there were five or six other Ormond players that played in the state games who I developed great relationships with, you know, Phil Merton, Phil Kingston. You know, Brett Connell came later on, but there were others, Paul Shoecraft. And then, of course, you know, Three of those years in my state uh, career, I was coached by Mike MacArthur Allen and um, and some of his assistants, including Jeff Riley. They were all Ormond people, so I kind of knew half the whole, you know, the Ormond team. Um, such was their strength. I mean, I remember one year they reckon they had nine players in the state squad, so I got to know them. I really liked them. I actually went to an Ormond ball one year, um, and so yeah, there were some great relationships and. Uh, it kind of felt natural to me to um, do what I had to do to get Grant off. And just uh, another game you had against Scott. You know, obviously, um, with these relationships that you've built um, in, in rep footy, um, you had Frosty um, Fuller, you had Rob Fuller at Scotch, obviously a superstar there. Is, is it true that, that your nickname's Cake? And we might get you to explain why that is. But <laughs> it, 
but at the toss, it may have been your birthday, and he's brought out a cupcake to the toss. Yeah, well, it's a good story, that one. It, it wasn't my birthday. Rob, Rob was full of pranks, and, yeah, he had a cupcake down his sock and um, presented it to me before the game as we were tossing the coin to see who was kicking which end. And um, the umpire was... He didn't know what to do. So it was funny. Yeah, I mean, cake came from beefcake. It, it went back to the early 80s. We were all pissed to the 21st. And um, it was when the World Wrestling Federation came out and we decided to have a wrestling bout at about 2.30 in the morning and I assumed the character of Brutus Beefcake. <laughs> Who was one of the better wrestlers at the time, so so it kind of stuck, and um, yeah, I mean, often now I'm referred to as the cake. And can I just ask you about um, some of your North Old Boys teammates? Because obviously, as we've said and as we've gone through, it's been you had some incredible teammates like Paul Considine, Mauro Borchich. He was at the end of his career when you started playing. Paul Bruce, Steve O'Rourke, a lot of these team of the century players. Um, does any of them really stand out to you? And uh, looking back, do you feel like you've played with um, some of the better players? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the old boys, and, you know, you, you two are probably a bit too young to appreciate it, but they were a powerful team and a powerful club in the 70s and, and 80s. And, and, and whilst I only started playing in 83, I, I generally felt that I got to know a lot of the older guys, you know, well and truly before I commenced. Um, I never played with Shane Maguire, but he was, he really should have played league football uh, back in the days, you know. Uh, Mauro Borsic, I was fortunate enough to um, to not only watch him play, but, he, you know, I ended up playing with him. And he, he was the four-time best and fairest winner and was um, just uh, a fantastic uh, player, but also a, a great for us younger blokes coming through, really kind of embraced us. So he's a favourite. Uh, unfortunately, Mauro passed away a few years ago. Paul Considine was a VFA great, you know, if I was to comment on the great players in the amateurs over the last 40 years, Paul Considine would be top three or four. And then there were, uh, you know, there was a guy by the name of Gus Carroll, whose brother Wayne was an Australian Olympic basketballer, probably could have played league football, I think. And then there were my contemporaries, Anthony Carl, Egan, Brian Hanlon, and then Tim Jones and Steve Maloney, and they all played, uh, well, most of them played state footy, and they were, you know, many of that group um, were my year at school, and we formed the nucleus of the club for a 10-year period. So we saw some great players. Bruno, I had the privilege, as I mentioned at the start, that I got to hear you speak last year when you were inducted as a life member of the VAFA, and Nick's already asked you about the rivalry that Nobbs had with Ormond, but you talked on that night about your rivalry with St Bernard's. Were they the second most hated team to Nobbs behind Ormond, or was there a couple of others in there? No, 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 they were the most hated team. Oh, right. <laughs> Look, it's really funny because we were neighbours, you know, St Bernard's and St Joseph's were neighbours, and... We socialised in similar circles, you know, and so they were the arch enemy. Ormond, there was a really respectful um, rivalry, as there was with Silas Dow. I'd say they were probably the big three. St Bernard's, there were some ugly altercations when we played St Bernard's. <laughs> uh, but in 85, we had a practice match against St Bernard's, and it, 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 it was a practice match, and, and it had to get called off. I don't know what happened, but Wayne Carey, from about 100 yards away, 
he's running into this melee and he was winding his arms in a circular motion as if to say, I'm just going to clock anyone. <laughs> and uh, and I saw it and just at the last minute, I don't know how I connected, but I got him in the ear and opened up his ear and had to incur the wrath of his mother and father <laughs> in the, in the uh, aftermatch. And we talk about it today. And So, yeah, that, they were the most physical rival, Ormond and... Adelaar were really strong clubs in those years as well. And, and then sort of collegians, we developed a pretty good relationship with collegians on the field as well. But we didn't know them as well as the Ormonds and the Delars and St Bernard's. They were the big three. And then uh, post your playing career and, and a bit later on down the track, you joined the VAFA as a board member. And what was your reasonings for, for joining the administration side of the Amos? Was it just to stay involved or did someone ask you to come on down and, and help out with all the experience that you've had from your previous years? Uh, this is the great thing with state amateur representative football. You develop a lot of goodwill. You develop a lot of relationships with other other players from other clubs and, and also the officials. And I just, over time, got to know people like Phil Stevens and, and um, a raft of other officials. And and some of those players that I've played against joined the board. Nick Burke was one. And, and this is where rep football was so good because you start to think about um, VFA football outside of your own club. And so it just opened my eyes and ears to a sort of broader VFA community and it sort of seemed natural for me to uh, join the board. And, and, and prior to joining the board, I was a, a selector. So again, I stayed in touch with that kind of VFA hierarchy for, for the years leading up to me joining the board. And last one, Bruno, before we uh, let you go, you had that storied career with Nobs. If you were to describe in a couple of sentences what the footy club does mean to you, as I said, we, we heard you speak so fondly of them last year. Can you sum it up in a couple of sentences, just how big of an involvement this footy club's had on your life? I grew up with immigrant parents. And so, you know, I tried my best to um, assimilate into, you know, different aspects of life. I think North Old Boys, I was just surrounded by so many great mentors over the years, the Maguires, the John Adams of the world. They picked me up and, and, and embraced me and took me in and, and taught me a lot. I was, you know, Tony Duggins of the world. Um, it was just um, a place where I learned a lot about life, you know, and I'll be forever indebted to, uh, to the club to, um, for giving me that opportunity. They'll always be my club. And I think uh, they'll always love you as one of their favourite sons. Bruno, we really appreciate you giving us so much of your time this afternoon on the uh, Club in Focus podcast. Take care of yourself and hopefully in 2020 when the footy does come back, we get to see you down at Gillen Oval supporting the knobs throughout uh, 2020. Good on you, Jen. Well, that was Bruno Conti, Nico. He's done everything that you could possibly do. Staggering amount of involvement with the Big V over a number of years, dating all the way back to 1986, if you don't mind. 16 games, as we mentioned at the very start. 13 games as a selector involved in over 65 games with the Big V. It's an incredible effort. But more so, Nico, I just love how he talks about Nobs and his time there um, and the rivalries with those clubs, including my very own St. Bernard's. Is that something that you've always known about Bruno? He's a passionate man and he loves the roots that he came from? Well, I certainly know it now. That was an absolutely unbelievable uh, interview and some fantastic answers and some great stories from over the years, which you'd expect from someone as well-versed as him. But just even talking about what happened there out at, uh, in a practice match against St. Bernard's, that'll probably go down as one of my favourite stories. Just oh, one of your best mates. Feel like if me and you were playing against <laughs> each other, mate, 
and I saw you winding up to go against some of my teammates and I just gave you a clip in the ear. Imagine what your olds would say to me if I was to do that to you, mate. We'd well, be laughing about it in 30 years. <laughs> don't get me wrong, but geez. You'd have, to hit, that? you'd have to hit me harder than just a little ear flick, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to only breathe your way, I would have thought, to knock you over. <laughs> you are an out-and-out out disgrace. There's no question about that. Now, I mentioned, Nico, that they've got a team of the century, and now it's time for us to go through it before we continue on with, with the podcast taking a look at the knobs. But these are some of the greats that have come through the footy club. And from the back line, uh, Barry O'Connor, from 1971 to 1983 in the back pocket. Shane Maguire, who is the captain, 1967 to 81. Mark Malone in the other back pocket, 81 to 89. We've just spoken to the vice-captain, Bruno Conti, who's on the halfback flank. Spent 14 years down there at Nobbs. Paul Considine is at centre-half back, 15 years in the number 19. Mickey Welsh on the other halfback flank. He played for 13 years. Across the centre line, Mark Hannabury had two stints at Nobbs, Nico. He played 1976, 77, 78, then came back 86, 87, 88. So a decade away from the club, came back playing on the wing in the team of the century. Mauro Borsic, as Bruno talked about throughout our chat, 14 years in the centre. Leo Carney on the other wing. And on the half-forward flank, we've got Les Murray, John Jordan at centre-half forward, and Anthony Cahill who we're actually going to play a little bit of Anthony Kay. We've managed to find some from the archives in 1995 when he was the coach. He's on the other half forward flank. In the forward pocket is Stephen O'Rourke, played for 12 years. Jeff Dillon's at full forward. Robert Sperling on the other half forward flank, who was part of the inaugural team back in 1963. The Rucks are Gary Carroll. Paul Booth is a Ruck Rover. And Paul Peasnell is in the roving position. While on the bench, Nico, a seven-man interchange bench. Paul Cheel, Maury Drew, Barry Anderson, Jeremy Griffin, Steve Brazzle, Stephen Maloney, and Dominic Patera with Terry Scanlon is the coach of the team of the century. And it's listed here that Terry coached them 81, 82, 83, and 84. Les Murray, who's on the half-forward flank, Nico, if you don't mind, is also the president. Yeah, we love a playing president, don't we? And it's just amazing to see one that's been named on the ground, particularly in their team of the century. Clearly, they didn't want to upset too many people. or Maybe they've just got a long list of absolute stars with seven people on the bench. But that's an outstanding, that's an outstanding team. And I mean... The, probably the player that keeps coming up with people that we speak to and as we research Brunswick is Shane Maguire and his 14 years there. And obviously, as you said, he's been named captain at fullback, but he was also their coach as well. So they've got some absolute superstar. The ones that I really like seeing, the ones that were only there for a few years, because you've got to imagine that the impact that they had during their few years must have just been absolutely massive. When you talk about Mark Hanabry and his two stints that had six years in total and Paul Peasnell has been named as Rover, and he was only there for six years as well. Barry Anderson, five. So you look at these, you've got a lot, probably 80% of the team have played to get at least 11, 12, 13 years. But then you've got a couple who've only played the five or six, which I think is really interesting. And you mentioned playing presidents in Les Murray. We're about to have a chat to the current president of the Knobs Footy Club. Jared Brown is his name. I think he's been recently a player as well. He's about to join us on the Club in Focus podcast. Well, we have got a thrill. Is the siren gone? Well, I think the siren's gone. We don't know. We don't know what's happened here. We think the siren has gone. There's people... Pouring on the ground, controversy. Oh. Oh. 
We think the siren's gone. Officials coming out everywhere. Branch Flower now has to kick. That goal swear is absolutely stacked. Oh, he must be at least 55 out when he kicks. Now, who's on the mark? It can't be Dean Goody. We need... We need uh, oh, we've got all the big blokes down the goal. Well, we need one tall fellow on the mark. Everybody's up. Branch Flower, Willie Blossom, today. He runs in. It's a big kick. He's missed it. That's the North Hall boys of Premiers. North boys, Premiers. The old boys have held on to win the flag. Great effort. That's a big effort. This man is a stalwart of the footy club. I think, Nico, uh, from what you know of him and what he's about to tell us, he's done just about everything that you could possibly do at the Brunswick Footy Club. I'm talking about the president, Jared Brown. Hello, Jared. Hey, fellas. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Am I right in saying that you've done just about everything that you could possibly do at the Brunswick Footy Club? Yeah, potentially. I didn't. Uh, I missed out on the 2012 flag, but I played in, uh, in a couple of reserves flags and, yeah, been the skipper of the twos and, yeah, committee member and president. So I suppose you could say that's uh, most of the boxes ticked. <laughs> How far back does the journey begin for you, Jared, with the Brunswick Footy Club? Uh, I was the uh, recruited a year in 2005, and then they realised that um, <laughs> about halfway through the year that uh, probably would swing between the ones and the two. So, yeah, 2005 came from came from Sunbury with a couple of mates um, when I moved down to for uni, um, and basically have just stayed ever since. What are some of the standout memories that you've had over your journey at Brunswick? The first thing that comes to mind is obviously the flags. Um, there was a a three-peat of, of reserves flags, um, 08, 09 and 2010. Um, and the, the seniors were pretty successful at that time as well. So it was just a fantastic time to be around the club. Lucky enough to be one of only two players to have played in all three of those games. So um, experienced the highs there. Uh, the 2012 senior flag, um, culmination of a lot of hard work for a lot of people and um, a lot of our veterans finally got that... Um, success that they'd been craving for a long time. Seeing some of the, the juniors come up from under eight um, and making their senior debut in the last couple of years, you know, that's been really fulfilling as well. It's having the Renegades, um, you know, with women's footy and how they've developed and grown the club. Let's talk about the juniors for a second here, Brownie. Um, you've worked hard, as I know, over the past few years, particularly to strengthen that relationship yet again. What can you tell us about what you've done to incorporate the juniors and to make that transition from the Brunswick juniors to the seniors that little bit more seamless. Yeah, the, the seamless part of it is really important to us because making that transition from juniors to seniors is important because we want the people to be Brunswick people the whole way through. But the transition and activations around um, coming from Colts to 19s to seniors for the, for the men is, is there. And, and eventually when... When the youth girls get up and running, you know, we've got probably three teams in the juniors and I think the highest is under 15. So in the next couple of years, we hope there'll be youth girls who then transition into the Renegades as well. Um, we've got development coaches. So uh, not only do we have a 19th coach, we've got a, an under 23 development coach. So they kind of sit uh, where they need to. So they advise the senior coach, but they advise the reserves coach and they advise... Um, under 19s coach and, and work with the players that are under that under 23. Um, you know, show them a bit of love and give them a bit of one on one coaching that um, maybe the senior coach might be not able to do. And yeah, I think those kind of activations holding us in pretty good stead. I'll take you back a couple of years. It was probably my second or third year here in the Amos, and um, 
I knew Brownie from previous life at university and um, he'd taken over the reins with Kim Hennessy as president at Brunswick and he comes to me and goes, mate, there's one junior that you need to keep an eye out on. He's a gun and he's going to play AFL. Right, His name's Francis Evans. I was like, yeah, all right, we'll keep an eye on him. Anyway, Francis played five games of seniors last year, kicked 21 goals as a junior and went and played Calder Cannons and then got picked up at number 41 in the draft to Geelong. So, Brownie, what can you tell us about how exciting that was for the club to have a player play Division Two amateurs throughout the season, this meteoric rise to then be drafted to Geelong at pick 41 come the end of the year? All right, meteoric is, uh, is the word. We weren't expecting it, but we had an inkling. When draft day came along, there'd been a lot of talk with between us and, and some of the recruiters, including Geelong, obviously. But Francis was one of those kids that always had, had the talent, but um, was just a late developer in, in growing. And um, he won the goal kicking all the way through. And the only disadvantage that we had from our juniors starting back when they started in, in 2010 was that they had to start at the bottom. Um, and Francis was part of that initial group. And it meant that they probably didn't get, get as much recognition from interleague teams or called cannons or, or anything like that until quite late in the piece. When he was 15, he um, he was playing in the Colts on the Sunday. We were a bit short in the 19s the day before, and he said he'd, he'd play, play the first half to make sure that we got a game in. And he kicked seven in the first half. We pulled him up at half time, and he, he went and kicked another seven the next day in the Colts. So he's always had an eye for goals. We kind of pushed Holder um, to say, you know, this kid, we think he's pretty good. Yeah, lo and behold, pick 41, strong footballer. Um, you know, Francis is a great kid. He always uh, gives back to the club and he's still part of all our Facebook groups and all that kind of stuff that, we're, that we've got online. But I know he lives locally in Brunswick um, at the moment because of the current situation we're in and he just sent me a text and I allowed to not get a footy and run on the oval. <laughs> so, you know, he's still, he's quite, uh, quite literally still a Brunswick kid at the moment. So we hope he goes on and has a, successful AFL career and we, we hope to have a few more to be honest there's a few kids that are in the um, 18s for quarter this year and yeah we're starting to now get that community name that the interleagues and the quarter cannons look at us um, look at us first as well which is great. One thing uh, Nick and I talked about in the intro that I'm interested to learn today is in the precinct that is Brunswick you've got West Brunswick you've got the North Brunswick Bulls of course you've got Fitzroy who play at Brunswick Street Oval you know UHS is just a stone's throw away as well I mean how do you go about your recruiting and what's your point of difference to say those clubs and I know that my own footy club is a great rival of Brunswick I mean when you're pitching to potential recruits, what do you say to them that stands out differently to the rest of those clubs around the community? We are a little bit different to, to every club in our area. Our kind of recruiting is more about culture and even using the, the vapors for, for the love of the game and, and showing that you can enjoy your footy. And then we, we kind of highlight where, where we are um, and where we've come from and, and where we're now going, where we started as a, as a school with St Joey's and then moved towards having that affiliation with St Patrick's College to try and get the kids down from regional um, Victoria, got that junior club, built it up, now have a renegade and all of a sudden we've got um, two senior men, two senior women, under 19s and about 350 
juniors. Jared, we appreciate you giving us so much of your time on the Club in Focus podcast, mate. Take care of yourself, and uh, we look forward to hopefully getting some footy in in 2020. Perfect, fellas. Thanks very much. One thing that doing this research that I uh, came across was them talking about the fact that they moved from Bren's Oval in 1990. Now, you and I know a lot about Bren's Oval. They've moved now to Gillen Oval. According to Brunswick Footy Club history books, it was a fortress. The current side that's there, you know what they talk about when they're talking about Bren's Oval. I'm talking about UHSVU. They say it's a fortress as well. Well, it just must be the conditions out there. Maybe it's the somewhat subpar club rooms. Who knows? But it was interesting to come across this. They reckon they attribute to that some of their really, really big successful years in the in that 80s period. Um, they've got a great write-up on their website here too about it. And probably one of the things that stands out to me was that when they were playing there on a particularly cold, wet winter's day that their coach at the time and subsequently their coach of the century, Terry Scanlon, gave them all a nip of brandy and went back out and played. And they reckon that might have been Don Batira that had a strong second half, but they're not saying it was performance enhancing, but he just wasn't feeling any of the hits or any of the cold. That's all I'm saying. It's unbelievable what it does out at Brenzo. Well, it must be the win, Joey. I reckon it's the win. And I reckon if you can get on top of that, which clearly UHS have over the past few years, but clearly Brunswick did in the 80s. And I mean, you go you go out there and it's a bit like the snake pit, like opposition clubs just, uh, they're scared of going out there. There is a windy driveway that just comes off uh, of a Royal Parade there, Royal Park, that little drive past the zoo. There might be a bit of a struggle after a couple of cans to get out of the driveway, out of the oval, backing onto the street. I think because the little fence is so low to the ground, you can't quite see it from your car window and uh, maybe a couple of cars, a few Ford Falcons may have taken it out over time, Nico. And it's one of those things too, because it had inadequate lighting at the time, they reckon that some <laughs> wily veterans such as Mickey Welch and Kangaroo O'Connor used to hide in the shadows during circle work, which I assume is something that you probably did during your illustrious thirds career. Well, no, no, I was there for every single training session because that was my chance to shine and get best on ground. I dominated training, never had a bad night. Uh, UHSVU at Bren's Oval, Nick, I did some numbers. This is how big of a fortress it is. Now, we, we don't have all the numbers from North Old Boys back in the day, but since 2012, they've played 62 games there. They've had 46 wins and 16 losses. Eight of those losses have been by two goals or less. That is phenomenal reading and such dominance at Brands Oval. I'm surprised that they ever gave up the ground to UHSVU. Yeah, well, we know that they do love the Alec Gillen Oval, which they've been at for quite a few years now. Potentially not the success at senior level that they had while at Brands, but UHSVU have certainly picked up where Brunswick left off. Scotty Sleep is our next guest. He's a 300-game veteran and superstar of the footy club. He's one of only two players at the Brunswick Footy Club to play in 300 games or more. Daniel Tonkin is the other one, but we're going to chat now to Scotty Sleep. We're told he's a bit of a character, Nico, and we're told he's not too dissimilar to your good self, so I'm looking forward to you interviewing you. This is very exciting for us on the Club in Focus podcast. We are going to chat to a 300-game legend of the North Old Boys Brunswick Footy Club. His name is Scott Sleep, and the current president, Jared Brown, likens him to our very own Nick Armistead. Uh, let's welcome him in. Uh, hello, Scotty. 
Hi, guys. How are you going? We're going very well. Thank you, mate. Going very well. Now, do you know much about Nick Armistead and do you know anything about how you could be likened to the great man? Uh, from my brief, brief discussion with uh, Jared, he mentioned that he went on a bit of a trip with Nick and uh, we had very similar traits. <laughs> Sorry, I took it to assume that we, uh, we both don't mind a drink, a drink and a bit of a chat. I think you and Nick both do your best work on, on footy trips, Scotty, and you would have had a few of those over your 21-year career with the North Old Boys. Take us back to the start in 1996. How did you end up down at the Brunswick Footy Club? Um, yeah, through a, through a mate. Um, what I, I moved down to Melbourne uh, to go to university and lived out of the student village, um, which ended up becoming a bit of a uh, recruitment area for North Old Boys, but being out that Footscray way, I tried a couple of clubs in the Footscray sort of leagues and stuff like that and out that side. Um, they didn't really fit, uh, fit me, I guess would be the, the easiest way to describe it. And I went down to North Old Boys through a mate who knew Clive Driscoll, who was down there at the time. And um, yeah, the the skill level, I, we were in sort of A and B grade at those times, sort of 95, 96. And uh, the skill level sort of fit me and uh, the people there seemed... Pretty, pretty accommodating. I remember Bruno Conti introducing himself straight away and making sure that he was, uh, I was, I felt comfortable and was introduced to the right people. So, yeah, and coming from Mildura, that sort of family vibe that um, the country footy sort of has was sort of relevant, uh, prevalent there at North Old Boys. So I felt felt like a good fit. Obviously, over 334 games, Scott, there's going to be some real standout memories. I'm looking through your career here, and obviously a couple of premierships, particularly most recently. 2012. Would that be one of the most memorable moments throughout your illustrious career with Nobs? Yeah, yeah, I was definitely the, like, what was it, 2012. So I'd have been sort of 16, 17 years in the making then. Um, so that that's sort of probably right up there in the top in the top few. 97, we played in the C-grade uh, grand final after going losing one game for the year, I believe. Um, and yeah, that was, a, although we lost, I mean, you sort of think back on it now and you go, C-grade footy is a fairly reasonable standard of football. We've played in a couple of B-grade prelims, stuff like that. So there's, yeah, there's probably three or four finals and stuff like that. 300 games is obviously highlighted as well. So, yeah, it's been, while there were some tough times in there as well, they definitely make you appreciate the the good times or those mo- those memorable moments. So when you do have those memorable moments and you've overcome some of those tough times, you're obviously going to celebrate um, as every good club does and we're told that as we said earlier your off-field antics are about as strong as your on-field antics and that uh, you're usually left to uh, be in charge of the trip the footy trip to Adelaide and particularly one to uh, one function the cloud 89 function yeah I guess I took um, I took it upon myself to make sure that we had a really good social culture I guess is a is a PC way of putting it I and it also gave me an excuse to sort of make sure that I was is uh, heavily involved in the part, in the social side of uh, the club. Yeah, Cloud 89 was an, was an interesting night. Um, our president at the time, Terry Scanlon, had, had somehow managed to wrangle uh, or bought at auction the, ever, the first function ever at um, the Eureka Tower, sort of like that level 89 function room. Um, and they were using it as a bit of a try, uh, using us as a bit of a test case for their sort of bar staff and their processes and all that sort of stuff as well. So while we got it uh, at a reasonable price, they were sort of learning and doing a few things. And it was actually a really successful function. We had like 250 people there and 
Um, it went really well right up until the point that they decided that the night was over and we had to leave. And obviously with a, uh, with a few drinks involved, one of the younger members of the club decided to let off a fire extinguisher on the 88th floor, um, <laughs> which, then, which then triggered a sort of like a domino effect of, of things where all of a sudden all these floors got shut down, all the elevators got shut down, fire brigade was called. Um, so we stuck in elevators uh, for about an hour and a half, and you can imagine that after having a having a fairly solid evening on the uh, on the drink, no no toilets in elevators, so that wasn't yeah. So there was some fairly unhappy in that scenario. I also remember having to walk down um, like forty flights of stairs. I think I was in the company of uh, the AFL 360's Mark Robinson at that point. <laughs> he wasn't overly impressed by having to do that. Uh, Eureka 89 staff are caught, like you're saying, we're calling our lawyers. Turned into an inter- uh, interesting evening. So. On the footy playing field, how sleepy. You got to play alongside a couple of champions. I know late, late in his career, but early in yours when you came down, Bruno Conti was still running around, I think, in the mid to late 90s. And another man who's in the team of the century that Brunswick have released in the uh, roving position is Paul Booth. Did you spend much time on the footy field with those two guys? Yeah, obviously they were, they were sort of pretty prominent in my, early in my career. Um, I think Bruno might have retired either the first or second year that I played. And Boothy sort of, I do remember being a bit annoyed with him because I my two numbers throughout all my junior career were four and seven. And he came back at one point and said, I'm only playing if I get the number seven. So I had to hand that over about halfway through a year, um, <laughs> which riled me up a little bit. But but for Boothy, you'd, you'd do those sorts of things. He was an outstanding footballer. Anthony Cahill, was he your inaugural coach when you got down there? And who are some of the other coaches that influenced you and your time down at uh, Brunswick? While Carly was the senior coach that first year I was there, I actually never got to play under him because obviously being a kid from the country, uh, my first, they didn't really know a hell of a lot about me. And my first six or seven games uh, that year were in the twos. We weren't travelling that well, so uh, the club took the took the uh, direction to move Carly on. And then the next week they promoted uh, Pearlie, who was the reserve coach at that point, and he knew I could I could play. So pretty soon after he was promoted to the senior coach, I um I found myself in the seniors. So I never actually got to play under Carly. I did sort of obviously see his training methods and uh, all that sort of stuff. And obviously with his career at Sydney after that, he, he obviously knows his football and his whole family, a uh, great footballing family. I, I've enjoyed uh, many uh, many drinks and stuff with Carly and uh, his family. They're great. That 97 grand final, I mean, after, after we sort of got relegated, Frank Donnell came in. He was great. Um, he influenced us and got the got a younger sort of group in and we sort of uh, went through that year really well and got into the grand final and just didn't quite finish it off on that day. Um, Foldy, Gary Fold, he, he was outstanding. Right up until the point where his doctor told him he had to calm down a little bit. Um, <laughs> and then, it, not that the passion went out, but I just don't think he could scare us as much as he used to. When he used to yell at us, he used to, the blood pressure used to get up and you could sort of see him getting real angry. And his doctor said, no, you've got to cut that out. And from that point on, I think we probably took a bit of license and, yeah, he didn't have anything to harm us with. So, yeah, <laughs> he was fantastic. Being a, being a, You being a country boy and um, obviously you just mentioned you've been at Nobs for over 300 games now and for the best part of two de- decades. What does the club mean to you, mate? 
Oh, it's my second family. I had no family down here when I was at uni, so they looked after me with jobs. They um, helped me out wherever necessary. They made me one of their own from really day dot. Um, I've got some of the, some friends that I've had, like one of my best mates, Daniel Tonkin. Him and I are the only two guys who have played 300 games at the club. It was a second home. It was a second family. I can't I can't recommend not just North Old Boys, but for any young kids these days that are just wanting to be involved in good people, like have a look at amateur clubs. There, there's such a tight knit community, and they're generally full of people that are just looking out for one another and trying to do the best. And I've got nothing but praise for the amateur community. I think it's a fantastic and like place to be and place to grow up with your kids if possible. I think we're all speaking from the same hymn book, Sleepy. Thanks for joining us on the Club in Focus podcast. Congratulations on playing over 330 games for the Brunswick Footy Club. You'll forever go down in, in their club's history as a stalwart, as an icon, as a legend. We appreciate you joining us. Enjoy your day and good luck for whatever 2020 has in store for you, mate. Cheers, boys. That was Scott Sleep, played over 300 games for the Brunswick Footy Club, started down there in 1996 and hung the boots up in 2017. A member, Nico, of the 2012 Premiership. And, geez, it's good to hear people talk about how much they love the Amos competition, no matter what level of footy they're playing in. Absolutely, Joey. And I think we've heard it, you know, over the couple of years we've been doing this sort of thing, whether it be on the broadcast, whether it be on the podcast, whether it be this Club in Focus series that we're currently doing. That seems to be the... You know, the overwhelming factor with everyone who stays for more than a couple of years in the amateurs, um, and they come in and they just love it. I just love listening to that. Uh, he mentioned Anthony Cahill. Now, through your good self and the Ammo's archives, we've been able to track down a little bit of Inner Sanctum stuff. We go back to 1995, Nico, for this. It's his three-quarter time address. It's against Collegians. Have a listen to Anthony Cahill coaching the Brunswick Knobs in 1995. Test for you to work hard, Boothy. Just keep going like you have in the last two games. Keep providing options. All right, Mickey Lay, you're going real hard at the ball. Okay, how we should talk that quarter? Much better. Can it improve? It can still improve, fellas. We promised ourselves that we're going to commit ourselves for the whole game. Let's not waste it at three quarter. Come on, let's not put ourselves in this position and and give it away. I reckon we're fitter than them. The last four training nights. And over Easter, okay, we've worked hard. Come on. I pushed you that little bit harder because I thought you weren't fit enough. And you worked and you and you uh, took it up to, to what I gave to you. This is when you've really got to dig deep. Tosh, this is when you've got to go that extra yard. Mark Kaziski, this is when your concentration is going to be tested. Not the first quarter, This is when they're going to try and suck you in. They will try and suck you in right up until the last minute of the game. But you promise me, and you'll come off if you don't, you promised me that you, okay. you'll, you'll keep your mind on the job. How good is that, Nico? From 1995, the three-quarter time huddle against Collegians. Uh, my favourite part of that whole thing was, uh, Chief, when I bring you on or if I bring you on, <laughs> putting him on notice. <laughs> I imagine that that's something you probably heard semi-regularly throughout your <laughs> career for some third and thirds, mate. If the big, if I bring you on, the poor bloke, as he said, he, you know, he didn't think the coach didn't think they were fitting up a few weeks ago. They've been working hard, cheap. I'm assuming 
was probably working just as hard as everyone else. Now he's just been told at three-quarter time, well, you might not come on in the fourth quarter, mate. <laughs> that is an outstanding piece of archival footage. And for anyone who does love the Brunswick Footy Club, go to the website. There is some fantastic vision from even as early as the 1960s, Nico, that they've released. It is fantastic to watch this purple jumper running around playing footy at its absolute best. The glory days, mind you, they still play footy at its absolute frenetic best at the moment, the Brunswick Knobs. But it's just phenomenal. Let's, uh, Let's move on. Let's talk about the new era. It's the Brunswick Renegades, and Kim Hennessy is about to join us. She was pivotal, Nico, in bringing the Brunswick Footy Club into a hole and inducting the women into the competition, into their club, and she joins us now. Hello, Kim. Hi, Hank. How's going? We're going very well. How do we find you at the moment in the midst of a global pandemic? Oh, um, so sitting in my study, working from home, Ugg boots on. Yeah, not very exciting. Now, the Brunswick Renegades were, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were already an established women's side. They were playing in a different competition altogether until the Amos brought together their women's competition. And is it just as simple as they came across because they wanted to be part of it with the men? The Renegades were around since 2014. They played within the old BWFL. Um, and played within that a competition for a few years. And then, look, once the AFLW really got up and running and the VAFA created the competition, that's when the Renegades moved across and that's how we got involved with the VAFA. So we already had our men's teams um, playing within the VAFA. So we had, you know, quite good knowledge of the VAFA and how you guys all operated. And, yeah, so it was a pretty seamless transition for, um, for us to move from the VWFL across. Kim, you had some success at the VWFL before you came over. You reached the grand final in 2015 and 35 players in 2016. But then I fast forward a couple of years to 2018 and you guys actually had to cap the number of women who, who were regist- registering because at 80 because you had too many. Yeah, we did. And look, I suppose it's a, it's a decision that we made and I know it's not one that's probably always... Um, maiden is quite as common but um, the way that we run the Renegades and we, we want to make sure that we give everyone as fair a go as we can and you know these years um, back in 2017 and 18 and 19 as well like it was just such a huge popularity and we just had so many people wanting to play for us and wanting to be involved and we wanted to make it as fair as possible so in doing that yeah, we, had, we ended up putting a cap on registration. I think it's absolutely amazing the fact that you guys could more than double your number in the space of basically two years. What have yeah. you done, I suppose, yeah. with the program to be able to attract so many players down to Brunswick yeah. Renegade? I think, um, you know, one of the things that um, we've already been, always been really big on is having a real community focus and, and, and wanting to be that community club. So a lot of, um, you know, when we were looking to players at the start of every year, um, it was really, you know, friends bringing friends down to the club. We do a lot of um, advertising in our local community, a lot with our sponsor, the Vic Hotel, so putting posters up. Um, and we really, we've always kind of prided ourselves on being a club for all levels, you know, all ages, being really diverse and inclusive um, and just making sure that we really um, stood by that year after year and, and wanting to be a club of choice for our players to come down and want to play for us. And I think we've been able to do that. Can I ask you, Kim, about the name, the Renegades? Is it just what yeah. they were when they were in the, yeah, so the- uh, VWFL? Yeah, so the Renegades really came about um, because the Renegade Pub Football League used to be played um, at Gill Noble. So um, pre-2014, it was a Sunday competition and, you know, it's still up and running now. But that's really where the name came from because there were a lot of um, women playing within that league. 
um, and wanting to play women's footy. Um, but yeah, that's really where the name came from. It was from the Renegade Pub Football League. Kim, the Renegade yeah. jumper is slightly different to the to the men's one. There's a bit of green, I believe, sort of right across the front of it. Is there a reason yeah. for that? It's just a point of difference? Yeah. Or? Back in 2014, when the Renegades were started, um, we had a completely um, different jumper. So the, the colours for the Brunswick Footy Club, she'll know it's the purple and white, and it's also navy and green. And we actually, um, as part of the women's team, had one of our um, previous players who was a graphic designer kind of come up with a few different, um, you know, suggested designs. And so we actually started wearing blue and green, and they were our main colours. And then as we've evolved, um, over the last few years, we've really wanted to bring more alignment between um, the men's teams and the women's teams. Um, and that's kind of how we've landed on the jumper that we're wearing now. So trying to retain some of that renegade history, but also bring it more up into, um, yeah, more into alignment with the rest of the rest of the club. I suppose um, initially you were the first ever female president at Brunswick, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. What went into the decision, I suppose, for you to uh, lead from the top? Uh, it was a footy was a massive part of um, my life since 2014, and always very much behind the scenes um, in the team manager role in the, and in the president's role for the last couple of years, and absolutely loved it. What was your reasoning for getting involved with the club in the first place, Kim? Reasoning for getting involved initially, my partner um, Leonie. So she was down playing for the Renegades. You know, I was kind of the partner and happy to help out. And originally, I think I said, look, I'm happy to come down and work in the canteen or I'm happy to do this or that. And that kind of evolved in the first year to organising uniforms, doing team <laughs> management, <laughs> just kind of kind of grew from there. So I always joke that, you know, I, I only ever wanted to work in the canteen. And, you know, fast forward five, six years later, I ended up as co-president. But, you know, I, the reason I did that is because I absolutely love the club and I love being a part of it. Well, congratulations, Kim, on what you've achieved to this point in time. Hopefully when this global pandemic decides to push on, we can have some footy and the Brunswick yes, Renegades absolutely. and the Brunswick Footy Club can be out there every Saturday representing the club uh, with gusto and great pride. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Nico, it has been a massive Club in Focus podcast today. All thanks to Mequacare. They're a proud partner of the Ammos. Been around since 1959. They're a not-for-profit organisation doing fantastic things. Mequacare.org.au. We've spoken, Nico, to Bruno Conti, to Jared Brown, to Scotty Sleep, the 300-game superstar, and to Kim Hennessy, who's part of the Brunswick Renegade side of things. It has been a fantastic hour learning all things Brunswick knobs. It has been absolutely fantastic. I just love... Between those four guests, just how different they've all been, different impacts on the club, like we heard from Bruno and just how it's gone from what was an old boys, North Melbourne CBC, old boys club really, to what is now more of a district club and now with the women involved for the last three to four years as well. I think it's been an amazing journey. Um, I've really enjoyed it and I, I, I had a lot of fun. I got my question answered, which I love, the fact that their point of difference about recruiting players to come to their club rather than the other Brunswicks around the area or Fitzroy or the competition across. We just need to find out exactly what colour those shorts were that they wore illegally in the 70s, Nico. <laughs> Someone on social media has got to tell us that. At Vaffa HQ on Twitter or at Vaffa HQ on Instagram, we will be posting some photos and stuff like that for people to check it out.
in the meantime, but we also want all footy clubs that haven't had the chance yet for us to put their club in focus to reach out to Nick Am- Nick Armistead at the vafa.com.au via the website. You can reach out to Nick through there or you can find him on the VAFA Facebook page as well. If you're a club representative and you want us to talk about your club as glowingly as we have done for so many clubs already, feel free to get in touch because we love talking about all our VAFA clubs, Nico, and hopefully in the not-too-distant future we'll have some footy to talk about. But until then, we are putting all clubs in focus. Absolutely, Joe. It's been fantastic. It's been a great few weeks. We've got a few belters coming up as well, so make sure you tune in. And obviously, as much as you possibly can, please support Mequicare, who are proud supporters of the VAFA, and in particular, this podcast. Thank you very much, Nico, for your time. We'll do it all again next week on the Club in Focus podcast. Hey!